Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. For two nights, we have been looking for answers to major questions concerning the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Sunday night, we ask, did Lee Harvey Oswald take a rifle to the book depository building? Our answer was yes. Where was Oswald on the day President Kennedy was shot? In the building on the sixth floor. Was Oswald's rifle fired from the building? Yes. How many shots were fired? Most likely three. How fast could Oswald's rifle be fired? Fast enough. What was the time span of the shots? At least as large as the Warren Commission reported, most likely the assassin had more time, not less. And so we concluded Sunday night that Lee Harvey Oswald fired three shots at the motorcade. And then last night, we began to look into the question of conspiracy. Were there others also firing at the president? We interviewed eyewitnesses. They told conflicting stories. We tested in our own investigation the critical single-bullet theory and found one bullet might well have wounded both men. Captain James Humes, who conducted the autopsy on the president, broke a three-and-a-half-year silence to report that he has re-examined the x-rays and photographs and stands firm that the shots came from behind. We heard Governor Connolly and heard that his recollections conform with our own reconstruction of the assassination. And we concluded that there was no second gunman. Tonight, we look further into the question of conspiracy. Was Oswald acting alone, or was he the agent of others? Was the assassination the sole work of a twisted, discontented man seeking a place in history, or were there dark forces behind Oswald? Continuing to seek an answer to the question of whether Lee Harvey Oswald was involved in a conspiracy leads us to a second murder. Oswald was taken into custody in a movie theater at 1.50 p.m., 80 minutes after President Kennedy was shot. But he was first charged not with the murder of the president, but with the murder of Dallas police officer J.D. Tippett. Our next question, could Oswald have made his way to the scene of Officer Tippett's murder? To solve the Tippett killing, it is vital to reconstruct Lee Harvey Oswald's actions from the moment of the assassination to the moment of Tippett's death. Yet for three and a half years, all news media have been barred from the Texas School Book Depository where the first critical few moments of Oswald's flight occurred. Depository officials have agreed to lift the ban for these special broadcasts. And so, for the first time, we have been able to follow the path of Oswald's movements from his sniper's nest on the sixth floor. Taking his rifle with him, Oswald went between the stacks of book cartons to the opposite corner of the sixth floor. He tucked the rifle down between stacks, and at this point probably discovered that the elevator could not be brought up, that Charles Gibbons, eager to see the parade, had forgotten to close the gate. So Oswald turned to the stairs and went down four flights to the second floor and to the lunchroom there, where he was next seen at about 12.31 p.m., barely a minute and a half after his third shot. In front of a Coke machine, a policeman at gunpoint actually stopped Oswald. But Depository Superintendent Roy Truly told the officer Oswald was an employee and Oswald was released. Free to go, Oswald apparently crossed the second floor through this office, went down the front stairs, perhaps three minutes after the assassination, and continued out through the glass front door, well before police sealed off the depository building. Here is how the Warren Commission reconstructed Oswald's movements after he left the depository. He walked seven blocks down Elm Street, then took a bus on Murphy headed for Oak Cliff. 
But the bus quickly became tangled in the traffic jam caused by the assassination itself. And Oswald got off, walked two blocks to Lamar, then took a cab several blocks past his rooming house on Beckley. The commission believes he then walked back to his apartment, picked up a revolver and a lightweight jacket, and set off on foot down Beckley. Attention all squads. Attention all squads. The suspect in the shooting at Elm and Houston is reported to be an unknown white male, approximately 30, slender build. During this period, the Dallas police radio broadcast a description of a suspect, and critics have made much of the speed with which it was sent out just 15 minutes after the shots were fired. It asked officers to be on the lookout for a white man, slender, weighing about 165, standing about 5 feet 10 inches in his early 30s. Well, how did police get the description on the air in 15 minutes? Critics have questioned both the source of the description and the speed with which it was sent out. The Warren Commission admitted the source could only be guessed at. Its own guess was that it came from Howard L. Brennan, an eyewitness. The critics doubt Brennan had a good enough view of Oswald in the window to arrive at a good description. They also doubt he passed the information on to a Secret Service man within 10 minutes, as he later claimed. At 1.15 p.m., 45 minutes after the assassination, the commission report says, Officer Tippett stopped Oswald, whether because of the description or not will never be known and was shot down. Now, did Oswald have time to get to 10th and Patton in time for the fatal encounter with Tippett? A CBS newsman following the Warren Commission blueprint found that 45 minutes was ample time. The answer is yes. He could have made his way there. Holiday weekenders don't forget to remember. Drive to your nearest store and look for displays of Coca-Cola. Now. There's something about an Aquavelva man. You're my kind of guy. I want you so. Baby, everything about you is go, go, go. With Aquavelva lotion, our romance began because there's something about an Get Aquavelva Aftershave Lotion, regular, menthol, and now luxurious frost lime. Is it a super jet? Is it a rocket? It's so fast, so smooth. What is it? It's Williams Electric Shave in action. The pre-shave lotion that puts wings on your electric razor. It sets up your beard for a closer shave. Lubricates your skin for a jet smooth shave. You'll skim off the toughest beard with jet speed. Put wings on your electric razor with Williams Electric Shave. Look for the big L. First letter in... A CBS News inquiry. The Warren Report continues. Here again is Walter Cronkite. Why was Officer Tippett in Oak Cliff off his normal beat? Those who believe there was a conspiracy involving the Dallas police force have maintained that the meeting between Oswald and Tippett was not an accident that Tippett may have been looking for Oswald or vice versa. They say Tippett should not have been where he was and should not have been alone in the squad car. Eddie Barker talked to police radio dispatcher Murray Jackson. Officer Jackson, a lot of critics of the Warren report have made quite a thing out of the fact that Officer Tippett was not in his district when he was killed. Could you tell us how he happened to be out of his district Yes, Eddie, I have heard this several times since the incident occurred, and he was where he was because I had assigned him to be where he was in the central Oak Cliff area. 
there, there was the shooting involving the president, and we immediately dispatched every available unit to the triple underpass where the shot was reported to have come from. I realized that, as you said, that we were draining the Oak Cliff area of available police officers, so if there was an emergency such as an armed robbery or a major accident to come up, we wouldn't have anybody there that would be in any close proximity to answer the call. And since J.D. was the outermost unit, actually I had two units, 87, which was Officer Nelson, and 78, which was Officer Tippett. Well, now, as you got down toward the time when Officer Tippett uh, met his death, what transpired right prior to that? Did, did you, were you aware of where he was all the time? No, I asked him once again what his location was sometime after and to determine that he was in the Oak Cliff area. He said he was at Lancaster and 8th, which is on the east side of Oak Cliff, but on the, in the main business district. And I did ask once again a few minutes later what his, I called him to ask him his location so I could keep track of him where he was in my mind, and, but he didn't answer. When did you realize that he was dead? We had received a call from a citizen. They called us in on the telephone, and the call sheet came, came to me. And it was a disturbance in the street in the 400 block of East 10th. And I had called, I said 78, and he didn't answer. And almost immediately to this, a citizen came in on police radio and said, um, send me some help, there's been an officer shot out here. And knowing that J.D. was the only one that should have been in Oak Cliff, I, my reaction was to call 78. And of course, J.D. didn't answer. So we asked the citizen to look at the, the number on the side of the car. This was the equipment number that determined which car, which patrol car was to be on each assigned district. And they said that it was number 10, and since I had worked with J.D. in this particular car, well, I determined to myself that with him not answering in the equipment number that this was Officer Tippett. The answer to this question is that he had been sent to Oak Cliff by the police dispatcher. Opponents of the Warren report maintain that Officer Tippett was shot not by Oswald, but by others. Who shot Officer Tippett? Eddie Barker talked to two witnesses who were on the scene of the Tippett murder. First, Domingo Benavides, who was at the wheel of a truck across the street from the scene. As I was driving down the street, I seen this police car was sitting here, and the officer was getting out of the car, and apparently had been talking to the man that was standing by the car. The policeman got out of the car, and uh, as he walked past the windshield of the car, where the, they'd kind of lined up over the hood of the car, well, uh, the, this other man shot him. And, of course, he was reaching for his gun. And uh, so uh, I stand there, you know, just, I mean, sitting there <laughs> in the truck, and uh, not in no big hurry to get out. Of course, I was sitting there watching everything. Uh, this man turned from the car then, and uh, took a couple steps. Then, uh, as he turned to walk away, well, he, uh, well, he was unloading his gun, and he took the shells, held them in his hand, and as he took off, uh, well, he threw them in the bushes, more or less like nothing really trying to get rid of them. I guess he didn't figure he was caught anyway, so he just threw them in the bushes. But he, as he started to turn and walk away, well, he stopped and looked back at me, and uh, I didn't know if he figured, well, I'll just let this poor guy go, or he has nothing to do with it, or, you know, I'm not out to kill everybody, just, you know, whoever gets in my way, I guess. I give him enough time to get around the house, thinking he might have went in the house, I sat there for maybe a second or two, and then uh, jumped out of the truck and run over. As I walked by, I didn't even slow down, I see the officer's dead, so uh, I just walked in, uh, got in the car, and uh, I figured that would be the fastest way. In fact, I don't even know why I called him on the radio. I just figured now that it was the fastest way to, to get a police officer out. Hello, police Several other people come up uh, later? Immediately afterwards. I mean, it was 
just oh after his, uh, people I right asked a block away like Mr. Callaway he come up and uh, he says uh, let's go get him or something and then this cow pulled up right afterwards and uh, so Callaway went over and took the guns uh, officer's gun out of his hand. But Callaway did go after him, didn't he? Yeah, Callaway took off to go try to catch him. Well, Eddie, uh, uh, I was standing on the front porch of the used car lot that I worked on here, and all of a sudden I heard some shooting. In fact, I heard five shots coming from the direction behind the lot over on 10th Street there. Well, I come running off the side of the porch and out to the sidewalk here, and I looked up the street and I saw this man run through this hedge up here on the corner and uh, I saw right away that he had a gun in his hand and then he continued across the street coming in this direction well when he got right across from me over here just oh, about 30 yards or less why I called to him and just asked him uh, hey man what the hell's going on because that's just exactly what I wondered I didn't know who he was at the time of course and uh, he looked my direction and paused almost stopped and uh, said something to me but I couldn't make out what he said. But he had this pistol in his hand, carried in what we used to in the Marine Corps call a raised pistol position, and uh, then he slowed down and started walking. Then I ran to the corner, 10th and Patton, and when I got there, I saw this squad car parked near the curb, and uh, then I walked around in front of the squad car, and this policeman was lying in front of the a squad car. Tom, what about those uh, expended shells? Well, they were looking all over the place for evidence, I guess, and, and uh, taking fingerprints and what have you. So uh, I guess they was going to walk off and leave them. You know, not knowing they was there and uh, seeing I knew where they was at, I walked over and, and uh, picked up a stick and picked them up and put them in a Winston package. I think I picked up two and put them in a Winston package, and then uh, as I was walking back, I picked the other one up by hand, I believe. And uh, I picked them up with a stick, you know, keep them leaving fingerprints on them, because... I figured they might need them. The cartridges that Benavides picked up were positively identified as being fired in Oswald's revolver. But only one of the four lead bullets removed from Officer Tippett's body could be positively identified with that revolver by Illinois ballistics identification expert Joseph Nickel. In the examination of the projectiles, the uh, tests and the, and the evidence projectiles were not easily matched because of a certain mechanical problem with the weapon. The, the barrel was oversized for the size of the ammunition used since this was a weapon originally intended for uh, British use and was, was re-imported into America. Uh, this means that the bullet, instead of touching on all surfaces going down the barrel, actually wobbles a little bit as it goes through the barrel. As a consequence, uh, it is difficult to have it strike the same places every time as it goes to the barrel. So that the, the match on the, on the projectiles was extremely difficult. I did find, however, that on the driving edge of the lands, there were certain groups of lines which uh, I could match on one bullet. I wasn't able to identify the others, although there was nothing uh, to exclude them insofar as the class characteristics. All of them could have been fired in that particular weapon. One of the bullets that killed Officer Tippett was fired in Oswald's revolver. The other three could have been, according to the ballistics identification expert. Ted Calloway went to the police station that night and made a positive identification of Oswald in a lineup. But Mr. Benavides did not do so. Eddie Barker asked him if he were sure Oswald did the shooting. Is there any doubt in your mind that Oswald was the man you had seen shoot Tippett? No, sir. There was no doubt at all, period. Uh, I could even tell you how he combed his hair and the clothes he wore and what have you to the detail. And if he had a scar on his face, I could probably tell you about it. But uh, you don't get things like that. The answer to this question, despite the problem of the ballistic evidence, is that Lee Harvey Oswald shot J.D. Tippett. What of the theory that Tippett actually knew Oswald? It's not easy to prove that someone did not know someone else. But every attempt to pin down the rumor that the two men knew each other has ended in failure. There is nothing in the circumstances surrounding Tippett's death to suggest any kind of conspiracy. 
Mrs. Tippett says flatly that neither she nor her husband knew Oswald. Officer Jackson was among Tippett's closest friends and had been for years. Eddie Barker put the question to him. Do you have any reason to believe that Officer Tippett knew Lee Harvey Oswald? I don't believe there is a possible connection at all. No, I don't think that he knew Oswald. Did you know Oswald? No, I didn't either. 35 minutes after Officer Tippett's murder, Oswald was captured in the Texas theater. Johnny Brewer, a shoe clerk, had spotted him in a doorway and watched while he slipped into the theater. Brewer spoke to the cashier. She called police. The next 48 hours were filled with confusion. An army of newsmen jammed into the Dallas police building. Oswald was paraded through the halls to and from questioning sessions. Police Chief Jesse Curry and District Attorney Henry Wade said repeatedly they expected to prove Oswald guilty, although he maintained to the last he was not. No record was made of his interrogation. Sunday, November 24th, the mob scene continues as Oswald is brought into the basement of the police building for transfer to the jail. And then, in full sight of millions of television viewers, a man named Jack Ruby surges through the crowd and shoots Lee Oswald dead. Why? A fateful meeting of deranged minds or some twisted conspiracy? Why did Ruby kill Oswald? This is the world of Jack Ruby, a world of neon and female flesh, of bumps and grinds and watered drinks. Ruby operated a pair of sleazy nightclubs, the Carousel and the Vegas. In the free and easy atmosphere that seemed to characterize the boom city, Ruby was also a hanger-on of the police, entertaining off-duty officers in his strip joints, often carrying sandwiches over to the police building for his on-duty friends. These are some of the people of Jack Ruby's world. His roommate, a competing nightclub owner, and two of Jack Ruby's girls. Mr. Weinstein, why do you think Jack Ruby shot Lee Harvey Oswald? I think he was on the spur of the moment. Had he really... Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. He wanted to make himself look like a big man, and he thought that would make him above everybody else, that the people would come up and thank him for it. The people would come around and want to meet him and want to know him. This is the man that shot the man that shot the president. Why do you think Jack shot uh, Oswald? Oh, I think that it was uh, mostly an impulsive act. And uh, Jack also, I believe, thought that so many people at the time was saying, uh, they ought to kill him and this and that, that he, uh, in my personal opinion, Jack thought this would just bring him a, a sensational amount of business and he would just really be uh, a hero. Diana, why do you think uh, Jack shot Oswald? I think that he came down there just to see what was going on. And when he saw that sneer on Oswald's face, that's all it would take to snap Jack. The way Oswald's mouth was curled up, you could even see it in the picture. I think when he saw that look was when he decided to shoot him, not when he was coming down. And I think he did it because he thought that it was a service to his country and in his way of thinking. That was the way he thought. I don't believe that Jack Ruby ever took any secrets to his grave. I've been around him too long and I've lived with him too long. And I'm certain he told the truth right up until his death. 
and I'll never can be, and I'll never be convinced otherwise. There was nothing he ever hid. The public knew everything he ever said or heard. Jack Ruby was convicted of the murder of Oswald, but the conviction was reversed by an appeals court which held that an alleged confession should not have been admitted. Ruby died six months ago of cancer, maintaining to the last that he was no conspirator, that he had killed Oswald out of anger and a desire to shield Jacqueline Kennedy from the ordeal of a trial at which she would have had to appear as a witness. Dallas police had alerted the press that Oswald would be moved to the county jail shortly after 10 a.m. on November 24th. That departure was delayed. Yet a receipt shows that Ruby was sending a money order to one of his strippers from a Western Union office across from the courthouse at 11.17 a.m., when anyone premeditating murder in the courthouse basement would already have stationed himself there. In fact, it was probably the activity around the courthouse entrance which caught Jack Ruby's eye as he left the Western Union office. Ruby was carrying a pistol because he was carrying money. He was accustomed to wander in and out of the police building at will. The Oswald murder today still appears to have been not a conspiracy, but an impulse. Meaningless violence born of meaningless violence. The Longhorns come to Marlboro country. Longhorns, new extra-long Marlboro 100s. Big gold pack. Big flavor, too, in the new longer Marlboro. New extra-long Marlboro 100s with Marlboro flavor all the way. The Longhorns come to Marlboro country. New extra-long Marlboro 100s. Night. No sleep for me. I'm all tensed up. Take a sleeping tablet. Aren't they all alike? No, this one's different. Night all. Safe? Of course, just follow directions. So what's different? Yeah. Read this advertisement in Reader's Digest. Nitol releases its sleep-inducing ingredient more than twice as fast as any other leading brand. Helps you get to sleep faster, wake up raring to go. Good night. Try Nitol, safe, non-habit-forming. If you want really clean dentures, listen. Now people don't even know why I wear dentures. They do look natural. I brush daily with denture cream to keep them that way. Ever soak them? Yes, but with a soak, you add water and just soak. Give me denture cream and a brush. People like denture cream's concentrated cleaning power. See? When denture cream goes to work on this stained denture material, stains are brushed away quickly and safely. Denture cream keeps dentures clean, natural looking. A CBS News inquiry. The Warren Report continues. Here again is Walter Cronkite. Uh, the most recent, most spectacular development in the Oswald case involves the CIA. It involves, too, the spectacular district attorney of New Orleans, a man they call the Jolly Green Giant. It involves uh, arrests, hypnotism, truth serum, bribery charges, and for the first time, an outline of a conspiracy. It certainly accounts for the recent national upsurge of suspicion concerning the conclusions of the Warren Report. And it raises a new question. Was the assassination plotted in New Orleans? Mike Wallace reports. New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison quietly began his own investigation of the assassination last fall. In a sense, he picked up where the Warren Commission had left off. Warren investigators questioned a number of people in New Orleans after the assassination, and they failed to implicate any of them. But the more Garrison went back over old ground, apparently, the more fascinated he became with the possibility that a plot to kill President Kennedy actually began in New Orleans. By the time the story of his investigation broke four months ago, he seemed supremely confident that he could make a case, that he had solved the assassination. As I certainly wouldn't say with confidence uh, that we would make uh, uh, arrests and have convictions afterwards if I did not know that we had solved the, the, the assassination of President Kennedy beyond any shadow of a doubt. Uh, 
I, I can't imagine that people would think that, uh, that I would guess and say something like that rashly. There's no question about it. We know what cities were involved. We know uh, how it was done uh, in, uh, in uh, the essential respects. We know the key individuals involved. And uh, we're in the process of developing evidence now. I thought I made that clear days ago. He shocked New Orleans four months ago by arresting the socially prominent Clay Shaw, former director of the New Orleans International Trademark. Garrison's charge was that Shaw had conspired with two other men to plot the assassination of President Kennedy. Garrison said Shaw had known David Ferry, an eccentric former airline pilot who was found dead a week before Garrison had planned to arrest him. Incidentally, the coroner said Ferry died of natural causes, but Garrison called it suicide. He said Shaw also knew Lee Harvey Oswald, that Ferry, Oswald, and Shaw met one night in the summer of 1963 and plotted the president's death. Clay Shaw said it was all fantastic. I am completely innocent of any such charges. I have not conspired with anyone at any time or any place to murder our late and esteemed President John F. Kennedy or any other individual. I have always had only the highest and utmost respect and admiration for Mr. Kennedy. The charges filed against me have no foundation in fact or in law. I have not been apprised of the basis of these fantastic charges and assume that in due course I will be furnished with this information and will be afforded an opportunity to prove my innocence. I did not know Harvey Lee Oswald, nor did I ever see or talk with him or anyone who knew him at any time in my life. A preliminary hearing for Shaw was held two weeks after his arrest. The hearing was complete with a surprise mystery witness, Perry Raymond Russo, 25-year-old insurance salesman and friend of the late David Ferry. Through three days of intense cross-examination, Russo held doggedly to his story that he himself had been present when Shaw, Ferry, and Oswald plotted the Kennedy assassination. Russo admitted at the hearing that he had been hypnotized three times by garrison men. A writer for the Saturday Evening Post said he read transcripts of what went on at those sessions. The writer suggested that Russo's entire performance at the hearing was the product of post-hypnotic suggestion. Clay Shaw was ordered held for trial. It could be months before the trial actually takes place. Meanwhile, various news organizations have reported serious charges against Jim Garrison and his staff, alleging bribery, intimidation, and efforts to plant and or manufacture evidence against Shaw. Last month, Newsweek magazine said Garrison's office had tried to bribe Albin Boboff, the 21-year-old former friend of David Ferry. Boboff, the magazine said, was offered $3,000 to supply testimony that would shore up the conspiracy charge against Shaw. Garrison promptly released an affidavit Boboff had signed. The affidavit said no one working for Garrison had ever asked Boboff to tell anything but the truth. Subsequently, New Orleans police investigated the Boboff charge and said Garrison's men had been falsely accused. But that was just the beginning. Three more bribery accusations have since come to light, two involving Louisiana prison inmates, one involving a nightclub and Turkish bath operator. In each of those cases, the charge is that rewards were offered in return for allegedly false testimony or other help that would implicate Clay Shaw. We will hear Garrison's comment on those charges later in the broadcast. Meanwhile, Garrison has gone on to include Jack Ruby in the alleged conspiracy involving Shaw and Lee Harvey Oswald. Garrison says Jack Ruby's unlisted telephone number in 1963 appears in code in address books belonging to Shaw and Oswald. He says both books note the Dallas Post Office box number 11906. Ruby's unlisted phone number was Whitehall 15601. Garrison furnished a complicated formula for converting PO11906 to WH15601. Louisiana Senator Russell Long, appearing on Face the Nation a few days later, explained how the code works. So that you take the P and the O and you use a telephone dial. P gives you 7, O gives you 6. You add 7 and 6 together, you get 13. Then you take the 19106 and you work on the A, B, C, D, E, F, the A, B, C, D, E basis. So you put A, A fall, comes ahead of E. Then you put D behind C. And you reconstruct the numbers, and, and, that, and then you subtract 1,300, which you got from the P.O., and that gives you Ruby's unlisted telephone number. Now, 
A Dallas businessman named Lee Odom had that Dallas post office box for a while in 1966. He said he didn't know how the number got in Oswald's address book, but he could explain how it got in Shaw's. Odom said he met Shaw when he went to New Orleans looking for a place to hold a bloodless bullfight. When I got to New Orleans and uh, I got there, I, it was late, and so I wanted to see what New Orleans, my first trip to New Orleans, and uh, I went to Pat O'Brien's, and that's where I met Mr. Shaw. I was uh, sitting drinking at the bar, and he was sitting next to me, and I got talking to him about the, uh, if he thought a bullfight might go over good in, in New Orleans. And he said that he thought it would, and we introduced each other. He was in the real estate business and said he might be able to help me. So the next day, while we had lunch together and tried to find out about a place to have a bullfight, made two or three phone calls, and we didn't find any place. So when I got ready to, to leave there, I gave him my name and my box number, which I saw him write in his little book. And uh, I never heard from him after that. But that's how the number got in the book. The number 19106 does appear in Oswald's address book, although some say the letters in front of it are not P.O., but Russian letters. No one knows when Oswald made the entry. Garrison has expanded the scope of his charges to include not only a Shaw-Oswald-Ruby link, but the CIA as well. Further, Garrison says he knows that five anti-Castro Cuban guerrillas, not Lee Harvey Oswald, killed President Kennedy. He says the CIA is concealing both the names and the whereabouts of the Cubans. In an interview with Bob Jones of WWL-TV New Orleans, he discussed proof that the guerrillas were there at Dealey Plaza in Dallas. We have even located photographs in which we, can, we have found the, the men behind the grassy knoll and the, and the stone wall before they dropped completely out of sight. There were five of them, three behind the stone wall and two behind the grassy knoll, and they're not quite out of sight. And they've been located in other photographs by process of bringing them out, although they're not distinct enough you can make an identification from their faces. But this is one of the photographs Garrison is talking about, shown first with an overlay. Those roughly drawn figures at the bottom of the page could be the men Garrison believes he sees through the little holes at the top. Now we remove the overlay to see the photograph itself, a hazy blow-up of an area from a larger picture. If there are men up there behind the wall, they definitely cannot be seen with the naked eye. I asked Garrison if he would sort it all out, if he could summarize his investigation and put it in perspective. About the New Orleans part, I don't like to sound coy, but it is impossible to talk about the New Orleans details without touching somehow on the case, and I'm not going to take any chances about reflecting on Mr. Shaw or this case. We worked too hard for me to ruin it by a casual comment. Four months ago, you said that you had solved the assassination. At that time, you didn't even know Perry Russo, and yet Perry Russo, it turns out, is your main witness in the preliminary hearing. Right. Is he still your main witness? No, are there others? No, there are others, and I, I would not describe Perry Russo as the main witness. But uh, let me say this, that the major part of our case up to that time was circumstantial. Again, I don't want to touch in any way on the case uh, against the defendant, but we knew months before that uh, the key people involved, but there was no basis for moving at that time. You say that Lee Harvey Oswald did not kill President Kennedy. Who then did kill him? Well, first of all, if I knew the names of the individuals behind the grassy knoll, where we know they were, and the stone wall, I certainly would not tell you and couldn't hear. There is no question about the fact they were there. There's no question in our minds what the, what the dominant race of these individuals was, and there's no question about the motive. In the course of time, we will have the names of every one of them. The reason for Officer Tippett's murder is simply this. It was necessary for them to get rid of the decoy in the case. Lee Oswald. Lee Oswald. Now, in order to get rid of him, so that he would not later describe the people involved in this, they had what I think is a rather clever plan. It's well known that police officers react violently to the murder of a police officer. All they did was arrange for an officer to be sent out to 10th Street. And when Officer Tippett arrived there, he was murdered with no other reason than that. Now, after he was murdered, Oswald was pointed to sitting in the back of the Texas theater where he'd been told to wait, obviously. Now, the idea was, uh, quite apparently, that 
that Oswald would be killed in the Texas theater when, when he arrived because he killed a blue coat. That's the way the, the officers in New Orleans use the phrase, he killed a blue coat. But the Dallas police, at least the arresting Dallas police, fooled them because they had apparently too much humanity in them and they did not kill him. All right, there is Lee Harvey Oswald at the back of the Texas theater. Then what? Well, uh, then uh, uh, notification has gotten to the police of this suspicious man in the back of the theater, and you know the rest. But they, uh, the, the Dallas police, uh, apparently, uh, at least the arresting police officers, had more humanity in them than the planners had in mind. And this is the first point which the plan did not work completely. So Oswald was not killed there. He was arrested. This left a problem. Because if uh, Lee Oswald stayed alive long enough, obviously he would name names and, and, and talk about this uh, thing that he'd been drawn into. It was necessary to kill him. That's where Jack Ruby comes into the picture. In That's right. Opinion. It was necessary for one of the people involved to kill him. Mr. Garrison, obviously we're not going to try the case of Clay Shaw here on television, but some people, some journalists and others, have charged that you have tried to bribe, to hypnotize, to drug witnesses in order to prove your case against Shaw. That's right. I understand that the latest, uh, the latest news uh, by a New York Times writer is that we offered an ounce of heroin and, uh, and three months vacation to one. As a matter of fact, this is part of our incentive program for convicts. Uh, we also have six weeks in the Bahamas. We give them some LSD to get there. This, this, uh, this attitude of uh, uh, skepticism on part of the press is an astonishing thing to me and a new thing to me. They have a problem with my office. And one of the problems is that we have no political appointments. Most of our men are selected by recommendations of deans of law schools. They work nine to five, and we have a highly professional office, I think one of the best in the country. So they're reduced to making up these fictions. We have not intimidated a witness since the day I came in office. One question is asked again and again. Why doesn't Jim Garrison give his information, if it is valid information, why doesn't he give it to the federal government? Now that everything is out in the open, the CIA could hardly stand in your way again, could they? Why don't you take this information that you have and cooperate with the federal government? Well, that would be one approach, Mike, or I could take my files and take them up on the Mississippi River Bridge and throw them in the river. It'd be about the same result. You mean they just don't want... Any other solution from that uh, in the Warren report? Well, isn't that kind of obvious? Where do you think that pressure's coming from that prevents witnesses and defendants from being brought back to our state? Where is that pressure coming it's from? It's coming from Washington, obviously. For what reason? Because there are individuals in Washington who do not want the truth about the Kennedy murder to come out. Where are those individuals? Are they in the White House? Are they in the CIA? Are they in the FBI? Where are they? I think the probability is that you'll find them in the Justice Department, the Central Intelligence Agency. You're asking a good many questions, but you haven't got the answers to those questions. You have a theory as to why, indeed, the president might have been assassinated by a group no, of dissidents. No, your, your, your statement is incorrect. We have more than a theory. We have conversations about the assassination of the president of the United States, and it does not include only the conversation brought out at the preliminary hearing. We have money passed with regard to the assassination of the President of the United States. We have individuals involved in the planning, and we can make the case completely. I can't make any more comments about the case except to say anybody that thinks it's just a theory is going to be awfully surprised when it comes to trial. Garrison says Clay Shaw used the alias Clay Bertrand, or Clem Bertrand. At Shaw's preliminary hearing, Perry Russo testified that Shaw used the name Clem Bertrand the night of the alleged meeting to plot the assassination. It was obviously a crucial point in Garrison's presentation at that hearing. But a week ago, NBC said it has discovered that Clay Bertrand is not Clay Shaw. NBC said the man who uses that alias is a New Orleans homosexual whose real name, not disclosed in the broadcast, has been turned over to the Justice Department. Garrison's problems multiplied yesterday. His chief aide, William Gervich, who conferred recently with Senator Robert Kennedy, abruptly resigned. Gervich was questioned by Bill Reed, news director of WWL-TV in New Orleans, and CBS News reporter Edward Rabel. Mr. Gervich, why did you resign as Mr. Garrison's chief aide in this investigation? I was very dissatisfied with the way the investigation was being conducted, and I saw it no reason for the investigation 
and decided that if it, the job of an investigator is to find the truth, then I was to find it. I found it, and this led to my resignation. Well, what then is the truth? The truth as I see it is that Mr. Shaw should never have been arrested. Why did you uh, decide to see Senator Robert Kennedy? And I went to uh, Senator Kennedy because he uh, was a brother of the late uh, President Kennedy to tell him we could shed no light on the death of his brother and not to be hoping for such. After I told him that, he appeared to be rather disgusted to think that someone was exploiting his brother's death and uh, by bringing it up over and over again and doing what has been done uh, in this investigation. There's been talk of allegations of wrongdoing, of coercion, of possible bribery on the part of investigators or certain investigators for the district attorney. Uh, to your knowledge, are these allegations true? Unquestionably, things have happened in uh, the district attorney's office that definitely warrants an investigation by the Paris grand jury as well as the federal grand jury. Would you say these uh, methods were illegal? I would say very illegal and unethical. Uh, can you give us any specifics? I would rather say that for the grand jury's bill, if I may. Is this on the part of just one or two investigators, or does it involve the whole staff, or perhaps Mr. Garrison? It involves more than two people. More than two people. Do you believe Mr. Garrison had knowledge of these activities? Yeah, of course he did. He ordered it. He ordered it? He ordered it. Yes, sir. Why did he feel it was necessary to order such activities? That I cannot explain. I am not a psychiatrist. Mr. Garrison said the CIA has attempted to block his investigation for some time. Have you his seen purpose it? for bringing the CIA in, Bill, is this. As he put it, they can't afford to answer. He can say what he damn well pleases about that agency, and they'll never reply. The engineers at Whirlpool have a theory about air conditioners. If they'll work in Panama, they'll work in Pennsylvania. So we set up a testing station in Panama. Not in any special laboratory, though. We just loaned air conditioners to some of the local natives. Besides being the only humane thing to do, it got us the most dedicated air conditioner testers in the world. They usually run those machines 24 hours a day. And if that abuse doesn't kill the compressor, and if Panama's humidity doesn't corrode the coils, we've definitely got a good machine. So everybody's happy. We know just how much of a beating Whirlpool air conditioners can take. And as for the natives, they aren't restless anymore. Trucks at work really are attention getters, especially to little boys. But it's a fact that whatever we do, wherever we go, trucks are important to all of us. Trucks play a major role in building and maintaining the finest highways in the world. Trucks that are made tough and light with aluminum. And to carry the fuel that keeps our cars running, big gleaming tank trucks roll day and night. And then there are the trucks that carry the food we eat the clothes we wear. Trucks that move millions of pounds of goods, millions of miles every day. Yes, practically everything we need, as well as those little things we all enjoy, travel by truck. Reynolds is proud to be a member of the American trucking industry. A CBS News inquiry, The Warren Report, continues. Here again is Walter Cronkite. Mr. Garrison is the only critic who has been in a position to act on his beliefs. He has brought Clay Shaw before the courts of Louisiana. 
And until that case is tried, we cannot, with propriety, go deep into the details of the evidence or reach any final conclusions concerning the case or the allegations concerning Clay Shaw. Mr. Garrison's public statements, however, and there's been no shortage of them, are fair targets. They have consistently promised startling proof. But until the trial, Mr. Garrison's promises remain just that and cannot be tested. But the whole atmosphere of his investigation and the charges that have been made by news organizations concerning it are not such as to inspire confidence. It may be that Garrison will finally show that there was a lunatic fringe in dark and devious conspiracy. But so far, he has shown us nothing to link the events he alleges to have taken place in New Orleans and the events we know to have taken place in Dallas. Those events, the events surrounding the assassination itself, we have now examined to the best of our ability. On Sunday night, we considered whether Lee Harvey Oswald had shot the president. We concluded that he had. Last night, we asked if there was more than one assassin. We concluded there was not, and that Oswald was a sole assassin. Tonight, we have asked if there was a conspiracy involving perhaps Officer Tippett, Jack Ruby, or others. The answer here cannot be as firm as our other answers, partly because of the difficulty cited in the Warren Report of proving something did not happen, but partly, too, because there remains a question as to just what Jim Garrison will produce in that New Orleans courtroom. But on the basis of the evidence now in hand, at least, we still can find no convincing indication of such a conspiracy. If we put those three conclusions together, they seem to CBS News to tell just one story. Lee Harvey Oswald, alone and for reasons all his own, shot and killed President Kennedy. It is too much to expect that the critics of the Warren Report will be satisfied with the conclusion CBS News has reached any more than they were satisfied with the conclusions the commission reached. Mark Lane, for example, the most vocal of all the critics, has a theory of his own. If you would give us briefly, Mr. Lane, your version of what happened there that day. Well, I think, uh, if I can use this model, I think the uh, evidence indicates, of course, the car came down Main up here and down Elm Street and was approximately here when the first shot was fired. The first shot struck the president in the back of the right shoulder, according to the uh, FBI report, and indicates, therefore, that it came from someplace in the rear, which would include the possibility of it coming from the book depository building. The second bullet struck the president in the throat from the front, came from behind this wooden fence high up on a grassy knoll. Two more bullets were fired. One struck the, um, the Main Street curb and caused some uh, concrete or lead to scatter up and strike a spectator named James Tagg in the face. Another bullet fired from the rear struck Governor Connolly in the back. As the limousine moved up to approximately this point, another bullet was fired from the right front, struck the president in the head, drove him, his body to the left and to the rear, and drove a portion of his skull backward to the left and to the rear. Five bullets fired from at least two different directions, the result of a conspiracy. An even more elaborate account is given by William Turner, a former FBI agent who has become a warm supporter of District Attorney Garrison. No, uh... What happened there was that the Kennedy motorcade coming down there, the Kennedy limousine, there were shots from the rear, from either the uh, Dallas uh, School Book Depository building or the Dal Mart or the courthouse, and there were shots from the grassy knoll. This is triangulation. There's no escape from it if it's properly executed. Uh, I think that the, that the massive head wound where the president's head was literally blown apart came from a quartering angle on the grassy knoll. The bullet was a low-velocity, dum-dum, mercury, fulminate, uh, howl nose, which are outlawed by the Hague Convention, but which are used by paramilitary groups. And that the whole reaction is very consistent to this kind of weapon, that he's struck and his head doesn't go directly back this way, but it goes back and, and over this way, which would be consistent with the shot from that direction in Newton's law of motion. Now, uh, I feel also that, that the escape was very simple. Number one, using a revolver or a pistol with it, the shells do not eject. They don't even have to bother to pick up their uh, discharged shells. Uh, number two, they can slip uh, the gun under their coat, and when everybody comes surging up there, they can just say, went that away. Uh, very simple. In fact, it's so simple that it's probably happened that way. 
In the light of what we have exposed over the past three evenings, it's difficult to take such versions seriously. But unquestionably, there are those who will do so, and it is their privilege. Our own task is not yet over. We must still ask whether the Warren Commission did all that was asked of it, whether other arms of the government acted as they should have acted, whether another commission might cast new light upon the assassination. We must ask also whether there are fundamental and profound human reasons for the aura of disbelief that surrounds the Warren Report. We will deal with all those matters tomorrow night in the last portion of this inquiry. But this is a natural moment to pause and to sum up what we think we have learned. Dan, you were in Dealey Plaza on the day of the assassination. You've been back there several times since, and uh, when we did the first Warren report, and now in recent days to prepare this report. And you've been up in that window. We've looked out that window with you, but subjectively, what is the Oswald Eye view of the assassination site? It was an easy shot, a much easier shot than even it looks in our pictures. Uh, the range was such, the angle was such, that it did not take an expert shot, one man, to do uh, what the Warren Commission says was done from there. Eddie, as news director of our esteemed affiliate KRLD-TV in Dallas, uh, you've been right in the vortex of this thing since the moment of the assassination. What about the people of Dallas themselves? Do they agree with the Warren Commission report? Walter, I think that on a... Uh cross-section basis, the percentage that uh, had some doubt about it would be about uh, what it would be across the country. Certainly there are people who uh, have some doubts about it, but most of the doubters, uh, I think, are those who uh, come to Dallas and who come into our newsroom, as a matter of fact. Uh, they bring a lot of questions, but so far, uh, none of them have brought any answers. That's the problem we all have, <laughs> isn't it? Well, let me ask each of you in turn this question. Are you contented? with the basic finding of the Warren Commission? I'm contending with the basic finding of the Warren Commission that the, the evidence is overwhelming that Oswald fired at the president and that Oswald probably killed President Kennedy alone. I am not content with the findings on Oswald's possible connections with government agencies, particularly with the CIA. I, I'm not totally convinced that at some earlier time, unconnected with the assassination, that Oswald may have had more connections than we've been told about or that have been shown. I'm not totally convinced about the single bullet theory, but I don't think it's absolutely necessary to the final conclusion of the Warren Commission report. Uh, I would have liked more questioning and more thorough going into Marina Oswald's background, but as to the basic conclusion, I agree. Ready? I agree with it, Walter. It's uh, too bad, I, of course, that uh, Oswald didn't have his day in court, but uh, I felt uh, the night of November 22nd that uh, he was the one who had shot the president and nothing has uh, come to light since then to uh, change my uh, opinion a bit. It is difficult to be totally content. Yet experience teaches all of us that any complex human event that is examined scrupulously and in detail will reveal improbabilities, inconsistencies, awkward gaps in our knowledge. Only in fiction do we find all the loose ends neatly tied. That is one of the ways we identify something as fiction. Real life is not all that tidy. In 1943, Lieutenant John F. Kennedy came under enemy fire behind Japanese lines in the Pacific. His PT boat was destroyed. His back, already weak, was re-injured. Yet he swam three miles, towing a wounded shipmate, found shelter on an island, escaped Japanese search, encountered natives who carried messages back to American forces, crossed undetected through enemy waters as enemy planes hovered overhead and survived to become president. The account of his survival is full of improbabilities, coincidences, unknowns. So is the account of his death. So would be the account of your life, or mine, or the life of any one of us. Concerning the events of November 22, 1963, in Dealey Plaza, the report of the Warren Commission is probably as close as we can ever come now to the truth. And yet, if the Warren Commission had acted otherwise three years ago, if other government agencies had done differently then, would we today be even closer to the truth? Tomorrow we will consider not the assassination, but the work of the commission that was appointed to study it. For the first time, a member of that commission, John J. McCloy, will publicly discuss its work and its findings. Members of the commission staff and one of the commission's most persuasive critics, Edward J. Epstein, will be heard.
And we will ask, although we may not be able to answer, two last questions. Should America believe the Warren Report? Could America believe the Warren Report? This is Walter Cronkite with Dan Rather and Eddie Barker. Good night. This has been the third of a series, a CBS News Inquiry, The Warren Report. The fourth part will appear tomorrow night at this same time. This broadcast has been produced under the supervision and control of CBS News. This is CBS.